This is the Breaking Labels Podcast, and I'm Rosanna Gill. Each episode, we'll discuss labels that have confined the stories of my guests at one point or another and their journeys to thrive beyond them. Some labels are external, and others we put on ourselves as limiting beliefs. But regardless of where the label comes from, we're here to break it because we were meant for so much more. Welcome back to another episode of the Breaking Labels podcast. I'm Rosanna. And today, I'm having a conversation with Eric Christensen, who is a documentary filmmaker. And he focuses on documentaries about people who've overcome trauma, who have experienced some form of trauma, and it runs the gamut on the types, and then how they have overcome it or what their life looks like now. And, you know, if you're wondering, you know, God, there's been a lot of talk about trauma on the podcast lately. It's because I I just have such a curiosity about what makes people recover from any horrific experience or how do we build our resilience And I think the only way you can really learn that is to hear stories like this and like the ones that he has committed his career to to telling. And there's so much to be gained from this, so many nuggets that I learned from him. Um, And it was just a really feel-good conversation. And I don't know that you would necessarily expect that when you're talking about trauma for an hour. Um, But I hope you walk away from this conversation with hope and also a curiosity about the people that you pass every day or that you interact with regularly and what they might be going through in their lives that you have no idea about and what might trigger them that you have no concept of. Um, so I, I hope this is an episode that raises people's level of compassion and empathy, if nothing else. Uh, before we jump into the episode. I did want to also give you guys a reminder. Um, if you are listening to this when the episode goes out in mid-February, um, there is still, I believe, 10 days left to sign up for the uh, Design to Thrive Leadership Summit that I will be speaking at February 21st through the 26th. Now, here's the thing. It is a virtual summit, and every day there's going to be uh, a series of speakers but we've all been pre-recorded. So if you're thinking, oh, well, great, I'm glad you're in a leadership summit when I'm working. Well, good news. You can still sign up for the summit and listen to the pre-recorded messages anytime you want. And it's free. So you can't really beat that. There's actually a link to register in the show notes for this podcast. But if let's say, life is crazy for that week and you don't get to hear all of them and you think, oh great, I mean, I know it was free, but I missed, you know, one of the speakers that I really wanted to hear because there are 17 other women speaking besides me. So there's really something for everyone. There's somebody speaking about diversity inclusion. There's somebody speaking about health and what it means to thrive, you know, putting your health at the center of the conversation. So it's not just management leadership. I don't want you to just think it's that Um, There's such a variety of speakers, but there is also a VIP access pass you can purchase, and that is $47. And what that does is that allows you to have access to all of the recordings for for lifetime. So even if something comes up and you miss something that you really, really, a message that you really, really want to hear, you can still hear it. And actually the VIP access pass will be available until I believe the last day of the summit. So, you know, if you decide, hey, I'm going to wait till the last day of the summit and see what I missed that I might want to hear, there's an option there as well. But that is, there is a cost to that. So if you just want to sign up for the summit itself, that is free. And again, the link is in the show notes. Um, Also, one last thing before we jump into this amazing conversation. If you have not already, before you listen to this episode, Can you please go and write a review for the podcast? I would be so very grateful, whether it's you want to write about what this episode meant to you or what you think of the podcast in general. I always appreciate any, you know, star ratings that you provide. But if you do a written 
what was I going to say? A written review. I would be so grateful. And I will also read it if you would like on the next episode. I would so love to read reviews. That would be amazing. Um, And it also really helps me because it lets iTunes know that there are people who are listening regularly (laughs) and have hopefully positive feelings about the podcast. So, all right, that was my last plug. With that, here's the conversation with Eric. So to officially kick it off, um, I noticed that, you know, before you started making documentaries about trauma, you went through your own. Um, Do you mind talking about that or kind of what the, not timeline, but I guess your own story or your own journey has been? Oh, yeah. I mean, my own journey is such a part of my filmmaking and, you know, I've, I've gotten very comfortable you know, talking about it, you know, it, it's all relative, you know, um, but yeah, it was, it was over, gosh, um, almost 31 years ago now that I lost my home in the Peta Cave fire disaster in Santa Barbara. And uh, man, that really dates me. But um, I was, you know, I, I've worked in the industry since I've been in second grade. And, uh, you How know, does that happen? Well, I made films, let's say, then when I was 13, I was starting, I, I started working professionally and, oh, yeah. and just because I was always a big kid and I, I got on all sorts of sets and things like that. But since second grade, all I wanted to do is make films. And the funny, the funny thing is, even though I was around, I was around nine, 10, when I was making my first films with, uh, you know, with a little script and everything. I knew I had a message, but I just wasn't exactly sure what it was, mm-hmm. you know, and that would, it, it took, you know, nine years old. Uh, it took almost another 15 years or more uh, for when that, let's say I was about 24, 25 when the fire happened. Then that, it, it was, it was sometime about a year after that, it really gelled what my filmmaking was. But when my, when my lost my house in the painted cave fire, I was, uh, editor, I was doing a lot of flashing music videos and commercials and things like that and making a pretty good living. And then I lost my home in the Pancake Fire. And uh, it kind of definitely to say it threw me for a loop is kind of an understatement. It took away all my material, you know, things that I had, you know, all my yearbooks, all my stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of left with me. And um, I was already drinking, um, you know, a uh, very unsocial drinker, <laughs> drinking abnormally, I guess you would say. And, uh, but that really set it off instead of drinking for fun and having a good time, I was drinking at the fire. And, and so, uh, what ensued was seven months after the fire of just, um, it wasn't, it wasn't a good time. Can I ask and, uh, you, this yeah. might seem like an insensitive question, but I'm going to, I'm going to put it out there because I've never been around or exposed to people who've lost homes in fires. And I see it on the news, you know, California fires destroy all these homes. And I, I had a friend years ago who, who her child home, childhood home was lost in a um, fire. And, and I couldn't, I, I didn't feel like I could empathize because I never felt terribly tied to any one place. So I couldn't really wrap my head around what it, felt like to lose things to lose everything what was it what was the hardest part of that for you oh my gosh that's a really good question because I see exactly where you're coming from with that and it's it's how tied into things you are materially you know you know I, I grew up a surfer and kind of a loner artist kind of guy and I got to tell you people you know some people go wow how traumatic and other people you know it, it's just in a way in a way, it was a calling card that set a lot of things into motion. Now, losing all that stuff, I don't look back on it. And I'm not like terribly traumatized about that. It's what I did to myself afterwards with my drinking and, and you know, trying to just really pull things in on me. And, and uh, what I, you know, it's a trauma I caused myself after the fire, really, you know. But now here's the crazy part is... I, I look back on that as it was such a pivotal point in my life because uh, 
seven months later, that's when I got clean and sober. And, uh, and then I continued, uh, or I began my own, my first film that I, uh, a personal film, that was the beginning of this whole thing called Faces in the Fire about the recovery after that fire. And so I look back on it now and I see it as one of the biggest gifts, you know, and I still live in Santa Barbara, uh, in Santa Barbara, I still live in California and we have fires, of, you know, all the time. And yeah, maybe I am a little bit insensitive now because I'm like, well, just make sure we get our pictures. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with making sure because my wife and I had kids before the digital age. So we have a lot of print pictures. I'm obsessed with getting those all archived up in the cloud because that's, if everybody's okay, if everybody survives and just our pic, you know, I want to get our pictures and our memories out. Mm -hmm. It's all stuff, you know? And, and, uh, but going back for me personally, yeah, you know, it, it, it was a real shocker. Mm-hmm. for me because all of a sudden it, it it was a big reset is what it was it was like oh my gosh everything's all gone and the next day you wake up and you have to go to the um the go down to Savon to buy a toothbrush because you need a toothbrush because it's gone now so that's that was this the weird part and then and then when you move into another place and you're like okay um I bought some tuna at the store. Let's have a tuna sandwich. You're like, where's, where's the can opener? You don't have oh. any of that. Like there's, <laughs> yeah. You got to go buy can opener. <laughs> so that whole like process is kind of crazy. You know, um, I don't want to downplay it. Cause some people are very, you know, the thing that was very, very um, uh, kind of emotional and intense for me is in the, I lived in a beautiful house and I had the two bottom levels on my mom who was older lived in the top level and she had brought in all her silver and all her antiques and all that stuff that meant so much to her. And that devastated her. And that was the beginning of her kind of downward spiral until she passed away. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it was the beginning of me, which is, oh. you know, a, a strange little dichotomy. Yes. But going back to what you're talking about, it depends how connected you are with your stuff. You know, when you get older and everything, and for some people, antiques mean a lot because that was mm-hmm. what their life was, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, my, if I were to lose my house tomorrow, if my family's okay and we get the pictures out or we get them in the cloud by that time or whatever, okay, you know? So I hope that kind of answers that. But that's a very, very good question. Thank you. Well, when you when you made your film about your your story uh, in the faces in the fire, did you did you interview or speak with other people who lost uh, homes or or been through the the Pitt K fire? Yes, exactly. And but you know what's interesting, and I don't know if we've ever I've ever really uh, broached this subject on in an interview, but I, I worked very differently then. You know. Um, I did, inter- I did have myself interviewed. I didn't put myself in the film. I never do that anyways, but some people think I should, but I don't. But anyways, I had somebody else do the interviewing. I would give them the questions. And then I had a headset that I would talk to the interviewer that was interviewing the people. And uh, I think at that stage you know, of my work, um, and also I was so close to it, I wasn't ready to put myself on the front line, mm-hmm. but yeah, we, we interviewed, we worked with the American Red Cross very closely interviewing other survivors and I got to know them very well. I got to know them personally, even though I didn't do the interviewing, I had a guy named Doug Draper, my producer, but that was the last time I had somebody else do my interviewing. And then I did all my own interviewing, except for here and there when I really trust somebody. I'll let them do an interview, but um, I do all my own interviewing. But uh, yeah, we we were a dozen people or a dozen groups of people. And that was before nonlinear editing. So the editing uh, process was very tedious and long putting it together. But uh, yeah. Were there, there any like commonalities? I mean, I'm sh- I assume there would be some, but were there any that surprised you? from victim to victim? You know, again, what a great question. Um, 
you know, uh, anybody that survives something and they, and they didn't pass away, I call a survivor. The victims mm-hmm. are people that didn't make it out. Um, okay. That's just my personal thing. Sorry, I don't mean no, to, no. I, I, don't I would be rather correcty. <laughs> please do, please do. There's no ego here. Well, there but, uh, is, um, but I don't mind that. <laughs> so, you know, that's a great question because were there commonalities? This that process of interviewing some people that and they were all from Santa Barbara, so we're kind of talking a homogenous kind of sampling of people. Oh, but okay. there was some there was some disparity in income and things like that but uh but the one thing is no matter how their age or their income level or whatever where they're from if they're living in a trailer or if they're living in an amazing house um i i was discovering there's a lot of commonalities it's different but the commonality of how we heal was the this glue that tied the whole thing together everybody was telling the same story but just the setting was different and the characters were different, but it was the same story. And it's a healing story. It's a story of being trauma of something happiness happening to us. And then us wondering what the heck we're going to do, go through all the signs of loss, you know, all the different stages. And then coming to the point where we actually meet somebody else that's went through the same thing. Mm-hmm. And we make an identification that's what I call the beginning of the healing. We make, I, you too? Oh my gosh, you went through it. I'm not crazy. All these things I'm thinking, oh, this is amazing. That's identification and the healing. And then we go on this healing journey and it can take anything. You know, it can take the, I mean, it can take the form of anything. It's like, you know, uh, uh, Freddie in my um, film, Searching for Home, Coming Back for More, his, his healing was riding his pedal bike and becoming like number three pedal biker and like, just completely beating the pants off anybody in these marathons and that was his form of healing other people do a more um kind of a standard therapeutic kind of healing you know they get their they get their therapist and they work through the situation and then they you know implement it in their lives whereas somebody else uh one of the 9-11 survivors she she's a painter and she paints and she paints and she paints and that's her way of healing. So, and then we finally get to the other side where we get the hope. And, mm-hmm. and for me, the hope is really defined of the extreme hope is when you get so far along in your healing, you can go back to the people in first of the line and give them a hand. Mm-hmm. But, but going back to your basic question, you know, is there's a huge commonality and my work is all based on that now. And I didn't really know it because I was just so naive getting into this film. I didn't know that if I interviewed 12 really different people that we'd still tell the same story. Mm-hmm. And my work is based on that now. Unmasking Hope is really based on that because I've tried to get a very diverse group of people from very diverse traumas not even just war or a disaster they're from all over you know all different kinds of traumas could you talk about different types of trauma because i think that well and this is, is an assumption on my part but that when people hear that word trauma that there's like a few certain things that they kind of pigeonhole as that's trauma and nothing else is like ptsd so somebody going to war okay I think that's something that's in the common vernacular that that's a trauma or losing somebody in, in, you know, or losing your house, different things like that. But what are other forms of trauma that you've encountered in, in the movies you've made? Well, you know, I'm going to take that because I hear like a chord of what you're saying and I'm going to kind of take it in that direction and you can kind of what we're talking about. And it, it goes back to something again, I've learned in filmmaking and not filmmaking and being a human and mm-hmm. interacting with so many trauma survivors is trauma is basically one of the worst things that's ever happened to you. So then to make a quantitative and a qualitative kind of judgment call mm-hmm. is so far off. You know, the, the saddest thing I hear is somebody that's went through something so horrific for themselves, uh, cancer or loss of a limb or whatever it could be, loss of a loved one. Mm-hmm. you know, whatever it could be. And then they go, yeah, that film was really neat. But, you know, my, my trauma is nothing like those soldiers. 
Well, you can't, like, mm-hmm. you can't judge. It is your trauma. And it is one of the worst things that ever, you know, possibly happened to you. And then the other thing is PTSD, it gets bantered about, you know, PTSD is a set of symptoms that is, it's a disorder. And, and, and everything does not produce PTSD, but there is all sorts of trauma related injury and healing that needs to be done. I mean, everything isn't a broken arm, right. but, but we have sprains and a lot of other things that need to be taken care of and you need to be aware of. And it's the same with trauma. What in the newest um, documentary, Unmasking Hope, what are some of the traumas that um, the people you interviewed had or have are dealing with? Oh, my gosh. We have um, we have a police officer that was uh, he was uh, basically ambushed and and his, his, you know, backups going to get to him. And so and, uh, you know, he he was a Mexican-American and he was ambushed by a bunch of Mexican-Americans, which really kind of adds levels onto that for him, you know, a difficult situation for him. we have uh, two 9-11 survivors. One was a first responder. He was literally rushing into Tower 2 when it came down. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it makes it, he's the most amazing man I've ever met. One of them. I, I've, I've got to meet so many amazing people. But Jack Delaney, uh, there's a picture of him like two minutes before the, the tower went down. And him and his team are running towards, these are the people that run in instead mm-hmm. of run away. The other 9-11 survivor, it's kind of strangely ironic. It was the first anniversary of her job that was in, um, I think, uh, Tower One, I think it was. And and she was uh, celebrating the anniversary on her way up to meet her, you know, fellow um, co-workers and everything. And she was in the lobby when the plane hit. And, uh, you know, so she ran for her life, lost her shoes, which is a crazy thing because we have these mass shooting survivors from Route 91 and Heidi, one of the mass shooting survivors, she is grooving and, you know, everything's happening and it's a great thing. And all of a sudden, pop, pop, pop. And what is that? And people start getting shot around her and she starts running and loses her shoes. Just runs out of them. These strange commonalities that happen, but it's also the same thing. It's so interesting because the 9-11 survivor, they didn't know a plane had hit the building. You don't know. It was just a huge, all of a sudden all hell breaks loose. The mass shooting survivors, Route 91, they didn't know what the heck was happening, but there's bullets flying, you know, and it's just, it's crazy. So we have that. We have um, a sexual abuse survivor. Uh, a male, uh, uh, his name's Lyman. He was sexually abused at eight, eight years old. Oh. It was a classic example of somebody that got his trust, his whole family's trust, then used it to sexually abuse him. And, uh, but all these people are working through it, mm-hmm. you know, and um, we have several other survivors. I have my little list over here. Oh, I'd be remiss to forget my friend, Sandra. And uh, Sandra was a, is a female Iraqi um, war veteran, and she was uh, also a military sexual trauma survivor, and she survived that. And uh, but now she's quite far along in her healing, and she's married and and doing great. And I just love her to pieces, <laughs> which is a really cool thing because I get to like get to know some of the best people in the world. <laughs> I, so. I, I think I actually saw some of her clip on the, the trailer before before we started. And that's a tricky little thing I do is I take somebody from my last film and I put them in the film I'm working on now. Oh. So Sandra was in searching for homecoming back from war and then searching for homecoming back from where war J.R. Franklin is in that film. And he was in homecoming of Vietnam Vets Journey. Pretty tricky, huh? Okay, so why do you do that? <laughs> what what's the you know, the play it's there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just fun for you. <laughs> you know, no, it's also, you know why I, I need a, I need a pillar. Mm. I need a go-to 
where I know, I know these people trust me so much and I know them so well, I need to build around that for my film. So when I did um, uh, Homecoming of Vietnam Vets Journey, I met J.R. Franklin somewhere. Uh, Homecoming of Vietnam Vets Journey is about a motorcycle ride from California to the wall in Washington, DC. And so Vietnam veterans, there's 300 of them at the time and they're supporters. And I hate calling it a motorcycle ride because it's really a pilgrimage. And um, I met J.R. Franklin somewhere in the middle of America at, at one of the events during this motorcycle ride that I was covering with my main subject was Bob Trimble. And uh, I just, we just connected. He's an amazing man. And uh, he, he became such a huge supporter of Homecoming of Vietnam Vets Journey. You know, I have some great stories about him because he's just so JR and uh, upright guy. And then so, you know, when it came to creating Searching for Home, Coming Back from War, I had, had this amazing connection with him. Um, and I needed, I needed something that was very familiar and, and that would be a pillar for me in the film. So I'm like, JR, I'm doing this film. I want you to be in this. And so when, um, same thing, when we're doing Unmasking Hope, you know, Sandra has such a beautiful story. She's, she's diverse herself, um, you know, a female veteran, Korean. Mm -hmm. And she's, and I'm like, wow, I need, and, and we just have gotten along so well. Now she met her love of her life, her soulmate, Mac, and I get along with him. He's a great guy, hilarious. You know, we've had him out to my place in California and we just, so anyways, but I needed a pillar, somebody that trusted me and I, I knew their story inside out, out that have a significant amount of healing. We've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. I think we went on. These people are significant in their amount of healing that, that they've been able to accumulate and build. And so that's why I put Sandra in um, Unmasking Hope because she's kind of my, She's my rock in there. I know mm -hmm. I got a story and I know somebody that supports me no matter what with the filmmaking. And uh, so she's in Unmasking Hope. With the healing journey, coming from a perspective of going through it yourself, but how would you describe it to somebody who maybe to their knowledge or they haven't gone through a trauma or they haven't started the journey? Like, or people who say, you know, oh, it should look like this or should take this amount of time. Like that, I guess, kind of a, put a linear timeline on the healing journey. Oh my gosh. Another good question. You know, for me, I'm a spiritual man and it's on God's time and it's uh, God's time has nothing to do with our time, mm -mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> never. <laughs> and, and it, it it depends on your complete openness mm. and willingness. Willingness, number one, the willingness mm. gets you in the door. You know, for my recovery from drugs and alcohol and mainly alcohol, it's willingness. And I see it time and time again. It's a willingness to do what it takes. But that willingness also is a willingness to be um, open, open-minded, you know, in, in my program, there, there's what we call the how of it. And, and the how breaks down into H, honesty, mm -hmm. being real honest and having one person you're, you're honest with, you know, and that's, for me, that's, I have a mentor or a sponsor. And then um, the O is open-mindedness. Mm -hmm. To be open-minded. It's like, it's just like, not a lot can happen if you have that door shut, you know? And then the W, which I believe is one of the most important is willingness and it's the how of it. And, the, and so somebody that's like contemplating this journey or anything, it's, it, it takes a lot, but here's also, here's, here's the other side of it. When you look over the other side of the wall, you know, and you're like looking down there, it takes a lot off your plate. Because you're like, I'm on this roller coaster and, uh, and, and I'm not controlling a lot of it. I just have to show up, oh, you know, that's so... and it's 50% of it or even more. And I tell, you know, I, I work with new guys that are coming in and, and, and getting off drugs and alcohol a lot in my personal life. And I, I tell them, you know, 
dude, if you shoot, suit up and show up, you're like 75% there. Mm-hmm. Just showing up. That's all you got to do. And well, take the cotton out of your ears and sit on your hands. <laughs> but be, be willing, the how of it. But uh, this, man, it's just showing up. But it, it, with this whole COVID thing, it's made it more difficult to show up for us. And so we got Zoom and we got like, you know, socially distanced meetings and things like that. So, which I mean, it, it may be more difficult to some extent, but I, I feel like if ever there was a time where people have to show up and get to be seen and heard, this is it. I mean, this has been such a tough time for so many people. And I don't know that some people would, like you were saying earlier, you know, how we compare, you know, oh, well, my experience isn't anything like that. And it's, I've seen a lot of that, especially with my friends who are mothers, who it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, they have this, this mentality of, well, you know, this is rough, but I'm blessed because look what that person's going through. And it's like, yeah, you can acknowledge what they're going through, but that doesn't mean you can't acknowledge what you're going through as well. It's a big form of deflection. You know, it's like, so it's like, so it, it, it kind of takes it away from you, you know, because sometimes it's really hard to accept, you know, and it, it, it's just, <clears throat> you know, even, even, you know, in, in my family structure here, you know, it's, it, we're, we're doing pretty well, but it, but it really is difficult to sometimes take a look at how um, the outside forces of what's going on do bend and twist your family, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and acknowledge that, but, you know, for people that are struggling, that's a classic device. So, well, she has a lot worse than me. Yes. Well, <laughs> well let me help you. Let's just talk, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and that's, that's a, such a key. It's just, you know, let's just talk. So. Have you found people that you were saying earlier, you know, there was a gentleman who who got into pedaling as his therapy and some people actually go the route of having a therapist or counselor. Have you found people that do a little bit of all of that? Oh, or maybe yeah, come definitely. in phases? You know, it's it's, uh, it's such a potpourri, you know, and uh, but I got to tell you one thing that I kind of missed on that discussion is that the, the one thing I see time and time again the one factor in somebody that makes it, I hate calling it successful, that makes it a healthy healing process are the people that reach out and try to help others. Because like J.R. Franklin, he's all about helping his fellow vets. And that's one of the reasons why he's doing so well. You know, it's a, it's a common thing, but going back to what you said, I see, you know, it's, it is. They go through phases, all sorts of different phases, you know, and and, and the thing is, is, you know, uh, it's all healthy until you get obsessed <laughs> and you get stuck in one place or just stuck. I need to do this. But um, yeah, but I see all sorts of things. But the commonality of the successful kind of path is when you really are outward facing and available to help other people. Do you ever, and you, you correct me, corrected me earlier when you said, you know, a victim is somebody who, who didn't survive or was who lost their life versus a survivor. Is that, do you find that common with, with survivors that they don't want to be called a victim or that there is something kind of burdensome about that? You know, it's interesting because I think some people might actually kind of want to be called a victim because then it takes responsibility away from them. I, I you know, I, I don't know. I can't really name anybody right off the top of my head. But, you know, the one thing that really connects with what you just said is what Dr. Arya Shalev um, said. He was, he's one of our experts. He's back in Israel now, but he was at New York University. Um he said that no matter how far down, no matter how far the trauma has taken you and how severe it was, there's always a spark of hope Mm -hmm. and that we can always find a grain to like rebuild from as a, as a practitioner. And so how that relates to, you know, what we were just saying is that um, with, 
with the people that call themselves victims, no matter how far down you went, you're still a survivor because you're here. And there's still, you still have possibilities, you know? And that's what I really dig being around some of these people that have made it through something so gnarly using my California vernacular. That was the surfer word. I, I recognize that one. I grew up surfing. <laughs> I, I, I've lived in California my whole life, surfed at eight. And then now I'm, I, I have my paddleboard now. But anyways, that's a whole other thing. But, but the people that are once through something so gnarly and the people that have come out the other side and they rebuilt that, it's just, it's something that to me, it's where my heroes are made. Mm-hmm. You know, money and cars, freaking anybody can, yeah. you know, a lot of times you luck out and you end up making money. Mm-hmm. Making money is making money. Any, any freaking idiot can buy a car, yeah. but very few people can rebuild their life after a cataclysmic accident, losing your leg in, um, in Afghanistan, like Freddie did. And then coming back to be the one of the top three pedal bikers or, you know, any number of things, you know, my good friend, Bob Trimble, you know, he was a Vietnam vet. He was in homecoming of Vietnam vets journey. And, um, you know, he was an alcoholic, suicidal, alcoholic, homicidal. And not only did he conquer his PTSD because he did really have PTSD, but he also conquered his, uh, his addictions and then he went on to help other veterans and other alcoholics that's those are my heroes mm-hmm. that 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 takes that takes a lot more than going down and putting some money down on a lamborghini it does indeed <laughs> but i i wonder if the lamborghini and the the money in the cars if for some people those aren't masks as well oh my gosh i was just about to say that those are masks yeah you know, and it's unmasking hope. That's what it is. And and we we cover up, you know, the people that are even haven't went through trauma. They cover up the places that hurt them. And that those become a mask. You know, look at me. Look what I can do. Well, it's pretty easy when you have a couple million dollars. You can do all sorts of things. It's not easy when you don't. So what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. And the mask comes off and are you going to unmask hope? You know, not to get all tricky with my wordplay and my movie but that's kind of why we named it that (laughs) well what have you noticed um consistencies in mass like you know somebody who has gone through this particular trauma that's a common mask this is a certain mask that you see or like have you seen that thread of commonality in the stories as well good tie-in it's a really good tie-in to what we're talking about because that deflection well mine isn't as bad as theirs you know with the 9-11 survivors well i made it out it's not as bad as those poor people that didn't make it out in their families and it's like and it's that kind of it's that kind of mask that i see there a lot that's that's a very common thing down downplaying your own personal thing you know, and uh, so that's a very common one, you know. And, I never and would have thought of that as a mask. And then survivor's guilt, you know, and. Uh, now, walk me through that. What What is survivor's guilt? The fact that they well, didn't die? Yeah, the fact that somehow they've been chosen to make it out. And with the mass shooting survivors, when we went to the uh, Route 91 memorial, that that was a big issue that we discussed a lot is because it's a beautiful memorial. Oh my gosh. It's not elaborate, but it's in in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And it has all 58 of the victims, which they were. They didn't make it out of that venue. They went to go see country music. They didn't sign up for a war. It still gets me. Yeah. And all their faces are in there. They have trees for each person. These little tiny metal things with all their memories on it. And so when you've made it out of a situation like that and you see the people that didn't make it out, it really, it's really, I can't, I can't feel that, but I can try to understand that. And so it becomes a big issue. Well, I made it out. And so one of our, one of our uh, missions going there was to deliver these painted rocks. It's something, it's a tradition. And 
one of the one of the women, the survivors in my film, Molly was so. Oh, I don't want to put my rock where it's going to disrespect anybody. I don't want to. I've got to do this, and maybe we can find a place just with the people that survived it, not the, you know. And she was very worried about that, and that in itself becomes a mask because it becomes a little bit of a block on you being able to fully feel what you went through. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, but all this is, in a weird way, it's all kind of natural, you know. How so? It, it's just you know that it's a natural emotion to feel the empathy for the people that didn't make it out and the families, but it's how big does that get mm-hmm. and how much is it going to rule your life as survivors guild. And I see a lot of survivors guilds because of the veterans and the shooting survivors. And, but, uh, I, but what I, a beautiful thing to be able to like stand next to them and try to understand it and work with them. I, I never thought of it. Well, I, I would I didn't have the the words to, but there was a gentleman I used to work with who in sharing his story um at work about, you know, what drove him in life and what made him want to achieve so much, it was the fact that his parents had lost three other sons and he's the only one that survived. And always wondering, why am I here? Why am I here? And that kind of being the driving force in his, you know, career aspirations and constantly wondering, like, why me? And I, I don't know that I ever understood until you said that just what a weight that had to be for him for so long. You know, and it's an it's interesting thing, because a good friend of mine said, and he was a he was a therapist. There, 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 a certain amount of dysfunction is necessary for a system to work. And so if on one side of what you're talking about, your friend, you can go, well, that's kind of dysfunctional because he was overcoming or trying to overcome the survivor's guilt of being the only son, et cetera, et cetera. But in a way it's kind of healthy and it's okay because he used it become successful. I mean, and that's just the way it works. So you know, there. I, it's kind of a Buddhist way of thinking, and all these Buddhists that are listening will like that guy's really wrong about this. But but all things, even though they seemingly are bad, and seemingly are good, they're kind of equal, and they kind of weigh out. Is that making sense? Because you have to look at like what happened to your friend, and and understand that no matter if you think it's dysfunctional and acting out like that. It, it produced an outcome for him mm-hmm. that that is possibly good, and so we need this dysfunction and a certain amount of it. It's when it goes way over the top, okay, that it becomes it becomes very seriously um, injurious. I guess you could say. I was going to ask, what is the the line? Like, where does it cross from that being? something a a positive to you know is it that the ambition drives him to try to be successful it it just irregardless or regardless excuse me of anybody else that might stand in his way of that success or success is completely that where it might become overreaching you know and uh you know in in the program that i follow and how i got sober there's a certain part that we do called an inventory moral inventory and um Part of it in the book, it says, you know, like um, uh, the need, the need to survive, the need to like reproduce, the need, all these needs that God has given us are pretty normal when they're like held down. But when that greed to like survive, that goes beyond, then we start stepping on the toes of our fellows that need to reproduce when we're pushing ourselves on other people. When we're doing, there's a point that it, it, it gets out of control. And that's where we have to like, take a look at it and, um, and, you know, see what we can do to reel it in or to, you know, if it's a, if it's a problem and they're all masks too, that hide what's underneath that. So what's underneath that pushing that, you know, there's always something underneath it. So hope that makes sense. Yeah. very philosophical thing. <laughs> well you know what it does but i my mind uh, full disclosure my mind had gone off into 
when you said in recovery, I, I had um, uh, an ex-boyfriend who reached out to me a few, a couple years ago, um, who was, it was just not a good relationship. It was, it was just bad in a lot of ways, but, and actually I, I talked about it. I referenced it in, in a, one of my own episodes where just talking about basically end up finding out he was a racist a couple months in and we both had mentally ill mothers and he would sort of use that information to to say some really cruel things yeah so he reached out a couple years ago oh man i don't want to cry sorry (laughs) and okay he said that he was going through recovery and wanted to reach out to people to make amends and i did not want to take his call i I still to this day don't want to. And I, I thought about it a lot and I ended up the next day, of course, at church, the sermon was about forgiveness. And I was like, Oh, f- f- crying out loud. Right. Like really <laughs> of all the Sundays, this has to be the one that we talk about forgiveness when I really do not want to forgive this person. And um, so I reached back out to him and I said, you know, if you need to talk or you need to get whatever you need to off your chest and you can, and he never called me back. That was the end of it. But when coming from a perspective of going through the program, does that hurt his recovery of the person that he tries to apologize to? You know, just, just, no, not at all. You know, I've been around for 30 years and uh, he did what he had to do. And he, he, you know, and, and it's, 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 it's his recovery. And just being able to say that to you and move ahead, you don't have to do anything. And we're, we learn from our point of view of the people that are actually doing the amends, you know, there's, there's usually three responses <laughs> when you're doing an amends. And I tell my guys I, I work with, it's the first response is, you did that? <laughs> they don't even realize because you build it up so big really? in your head. Yeah. Or... It's, oh my gosh, thank you so much. You know, God bless you. Or it's, um, or it's get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear anything about it. And those are the three responses. And you kind of got the first one, you know, you're kind of like, okay, great. Thank you. And, and, but we, we're prepared for that because it's not about the people we're making amends to. We need to make it right. But it's really about his recovery and moving forwards and cleaning his side. And he cleaned his side of the street with you. Hmm. Sounds like it's me. <laughs> I think so. I hope so. Yeah, I've been doing this thing for a while. And I, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know I, I remain active in my program every week, every day. Can That's you explain the why? That people don't understand. I don't I, I'm glad you said that because I always wondered why do you have to continue to go to meetings after the fact is it is it like this is going to be probably the worst analogy ever so bear with me but is it like like just a regular oil change to make sure that you are like operating at the best way that you can emotionally or what what is the the purpose of it you know that's a really neat analogy i think some of it is that i i do want to be the best for the people around me the other part is i am broken <laughs> and uh, that deep part of me that's kind of broken doesn't necessarily get perfectly fixed and that's where the society right now this whole i'm just going to go off to rehab and everything's going to be okay it doesn't work because you know you get rid of the drinking and drugging and what do you have left? You. <laughs> and, and that's where the problem sits, mm-hmm. you know? And so we have to constantly work on that. And, uh, and that's okay. You know, I've accepted it. A lot of people don't accept it. And that's where the people die, you know, because they, they, they think they want the 90 day fix and come out and everything's okay. And I'm going to go cruising back into my life. Well, I'm sorry. You know, it's just like diabetes or anything else that you can get that you have to have a constant uh, program maintenance, you know, and I've worked out a deal with God that I do my part and he'll do his part. Mm -hmm. He does what I can do, what I do, what I can do for myself. And he does what I can't do for myself. Is that why you said that the, the big part of it is just showing up? 
that's you doing your part? And sometimes, you know, my, my whole, you know, I, I just, I just got 30 years clean and sober through the grace of God and, and my anonymous program. Um, For you. I love the, the quotations. On the <laughs> <yeah. anonymous. laughs> I'm not dropping any names, mm-hmm. uh, remaining semi-anonymous, but um, the, the thing that really, that really hit me this, this year and, and that my, my mentor really pushes on me is what is the basic simplest action I can take? And then when I take that basic simplest action, mm. sometimes it's just not opening up my mouth. It gives God enough room to come in and do what he can do. And it's amazing. Can you give oh. me an example of just not opening your mouth? Like how would that be the simplest action or what's a situation? Oh my gosh, I can fix everything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm coming up on 29 years of marriage and it's like, I can fix everything. No, I, I just sometimes, seriously, people don't need to know. I, I, I don't need my, people don't need my cynical sarcasm. They don't need, mm. you know, they don't, it, it's just, you know, it says in the Bible, the wise man keeps his mouth shut, you know, and it's a fool that blabbers on and on. And it's like, sometimes it's just by me not weighing in and being humble, I guess, that things go a lot better. You know, and th- I mean, to take it to, to take an extreme or not extreme, but to take it, you know, expectations of how people behave, you know, letting that go. And if they don't believe, if they behave in a way that's beyond your expectation or not what you, oh, well, mm-hmm. you don't have to mention it to them. Okay. And then within that silence, in that place, and how you can become this thing, this feeling, people will change around you. And I, I you know, that's how I kind of, that's why I'm learning with parenting now and, and working with my kids and things like that. So Can but, you, uh, what are things as, you know, I don't know why, but my mind went there when you said, you know, sometimes just not saying anything or not fixing. What about the loved ones of the person who's going, gone through trauma and is, in going through the process, whatever stage they're in, what are the things they could or should not try to do to help? Oh my gosh, that's, you know, it, it's a really super fine line being in that position and it's extremely stressful to see somebody spiraling or doing yeah. whatever they do, you know? And, you know, with trauma, it's a tricky thing, you know, to, when to speak up and when not to, you know, and, but, you know, for, for like, for the people that are living with an addict and things, they're not done until they're done, you know, and hiding, hiding the bottle isn't going to get the job done mm-hmm. until they, until they get the willingness to change. And I know that is that way with addict and alcoholic. Now with the trauma, it's a whole different thing. You know, the behaviors and things, some of them are so deeply etched in their behavior that um, it's just, it's going to take a lot of work to get rid of it. And so by trying to modify or to tell them about it, isn't that helpful, Mm. you know, but, but then there's a fine line when you're enabling somebody. Oh yeah. Marginally that has been traumatized that have severe problems, you know, then it goes into the whole mental health question, you know, and then, you know, the stigmas and things that, that are attached to that. But what, um, what, what is the mental health question? Well, I mean, some people can become so traumatized and things that, it, it, you know, it, it throws them into more of a mental health well, trauma is a mental health issue, but more of a mental health issue. You know, and, um, you know, it just, we're getting into more of an ambiguous discussion here, but, you know, I I think about the people in my films and things and how some of them, how some of them live, Um, you know, until, see, but the mental health issue that comes up when they, when they become so delusional, they've lost the ability to like have an audience with themselves. That's what I'm saying, if that makes sense. 
where they can't see what their own behaviors look like outside of themselves. Okay. You know, and so that's where it gets kind of scary and it's very, very difficult for the individual that is in connection with them or in partnership with them or whatever to be able to intervene, you know, because it's very difficult to get help when you don't think you need help. Right. And it's very difficult for that person in your life. They can't necessarily force you to. I mean, no, no. I, so, I, I was trying to think if there was a, a way that you can, but I don't think you can even legally. And it becomes, it becomes a question then of the person that's in, in, in connection with them to really take care of themselves. Mm. You know, it's, you know, when I was working, I had a recovery group at, and I still get calls all the time, but I had a recovery group at church and I get calls from moms and and wives all the time and, and husbands talking about, Oh, you know, can you help me? What can I do for him? Da, 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 da. And this is about drugs and alcohol, not necessarily trauma, but, um, you know, one of the things I would say is, well, number one, you got to make sure you're safe and you're taking care of yourself and then, you know, everything else will follow. So, you know, it kind of goes full circle into what's the action you can take, you know? Well, the action I can take is make sure that I'm safe and I'm taking care of myself and not losing myself in an addiction to somebody else's problem because you can get addicted to somebody else's problem Become mm-hmm. codependent. Am I taking care of myself well enough that I will be an actual asset to them when they need it? Mm. You know, and that's it goes back to what I think about things right now. Everybody wants to fix the big picture. They want to, you know, it's like look at what's going on, you know, and all this, you know, politics and all this, and they get on Facebook and they argue and argue. You know, what's the small action you really can take? You know, it's, it's a Michael Jackson song. I heard it the other day and I start crying. It's the man in the mirror. Mm. You know, I'm going to start with the man in the mirror. I'm going to take care of this guy. So then maybe he can start to take care of other people. I hope that that's what this podcast is. Not just this episode, but the podcast it's in its entirety. I mean, we, we really didn't talk about that part at all. But the fact that it's breaking labels, it I think part of the reason when I was on your website that unmasking hope resonated so much is because I think it's the same thing with breaking labels. It's taking off this burden that you've had and just allowing yourself to say, well, one, you know, I I maybe hopefully they're, they're healing through it, but also for somebody else to see it and to recognize it Mm -hmm. and to know they're not alone, no matter what the label is or no matter what the trauma is. Because I know for me, just finding that out, those little like, almost like little Easter eggs throughout the years yeah. of like hearing a story in a podcast or on a YouTube video or just somewhere where there was just somebody that I could say, oh God, me too. And it, it does, it gives you hope. And sometimes it's like, it is that thread that just keeps you hanging on. And that's, you know, that's totally what we have in common. That's what my films are designed to do is to, you know, the, the people that aren't in it, to the people that aren't in the trauma or something, it, it produces empathy and tolerance because they find out how somebody else lives. Yes. Through an emotional way. But the people that are in it, it produces a connection and identification And then hopefully through that, it produces aspiration, which means very similar inspiration, but ask to aspire to be like them. Oh, they have done it. I can follow this path. Mm -hmm. So there's two sides to my films. And if you look at your podcast, there's possibly two sides to it too, very much like that the people from the outside hear guests and hear your story. They're like, oh, produces tolerance and empathy. And then the people that are involved in it, it's like, oh, okay, there, there's a very positive, this guy's been through this and she's been through this. And so it's, it's an interesting, you know, little two-sided coin of my films and what I do. I, I did want to ask for, for Unmasking Hope, for somebody who hasn't gone through trauma, what would they, what do you hope that 
the film does for them or shows them? Is it seeing other people in that empathy that you mentioned or? You know, one of the classic things, it's the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Oh, haven't they gotten over it yet? Oh my God, do people really say that? <laughs> oh yeah. When, when, they talk to, when they talk to Becky, it, this was like when we first started filming, it's like, well, it's been 18 years, you know? And it's like, oh. well, not really, you know? It's like, I, to dis- dispel that is like a very important thing. And it's like empathy to see what this has done. Like realize the person next to you, you know, could have went, been at Route 91, could have been a sexual abuse survivor. And then understand that, you know, it produces tolerance, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, and that's, that's, that's really important, you know, with, with Unmasking Hope that, but also the other thing is, is when you see an African-American man that was, you know, sexually assaulted when he was eight. And you see a woman now in her forties that went through 9-11 and you see a police officer out of Kansas and they're all kind of struggling to heal and they're healing in their own way that you realize, gosh, I'm kind of in that picture too somewhere. And so it produces a, a certain amount of tolerance because we're kind of in this together. You know, nobody has an exclusive lock on trauma and or the recovery. You know, we're all, we're all trudging and trying to make this happen. And we're at different po- points in all of it, you know? And so that, I think that's really important. You know, it's all very subtle shading, I guess, in the film. And, you know, and that's where I'm at right now is, you know, we're in post-production we have a little couple more interviews, but we're really in post-production trying to trying to tell the sacred stories, but still bring those subtleties out is my is my challenge right now. I feel like the mask analogy is big because when you look at somebody who has gone through the trauma that the people you interview have, things that you know, some of them you would think, or I would think are just unspeakable. And how could somebody go through that? And and how could that be? It makes you wonder, or at least it makes me wonder every single day when I'm on the street, even if we're socially distanced, what is that person I'm passing going through that I have no idea about? And that's what this film is really trying to do is like make you realize that the guy next to you, you know, he has his own story too. I wonder how many people have found some solace in, and I know this may sound crazy, but the face mask that we wear now, because I personally know I have a few times where there is a certain level of freedom to having that much of your face covered and not having to necessarily, and I don't mean it in a way like, oh, I can go do something absurd, but even if I'm in the grocery store and I hear a good song and I want to dance like an idiot in the middle of the aisle, just because I feel like it, well, I don't have a, I have a mask on now. I don't have to worry about that. And I full disclosure, I did that before I wore a mask, but you know, there is some freedom in that, which I don't think that maybe people realize. You know, and let, let me throw let me throw the other side to that back out at you is with the Route 91 survivors, the masks are a nightmare. Because when they're in an enclosed area and somebody comes in with a the mask, they can't read them. <gasps> And so they're like, okay, is that guy gonna, what's gonna go on here? You know? I would never. And so it it just, we had, it's interesting because I was just reading the transcript the other day from the Route 91 of the Route 91 survivors talking about how the masks are a huge stressor for her in public, basically, because, you know, after the incident, she constantly has to read everybody's face. Is this guy one of them? It's, could he be one? Could they be one? You know, it's like, and so when they had the mask, it really disguises what your intent could be. And so um, it's, it's very, very stressful for them, you know? And, um, and that's the thing, that's the thing about trauma. You take a small thing and, and your brain has been etched with that. You're, you know, we're, we're meant to survive. And so, you know, running out of there and trying to read everybody's faces, 
not knowing if they didn't know if somebody in there had the gun or what. So they're looking at everybody. Is that guy coming after me? Yes. Is that guy come? What is going on? And so now that's so seared in their brain that you go to the bank and some guy comes in and you're like, and, and he has a mask on and you're, what's his intention? <sighs> and that doesn't just go away. And that's another thing that my film, I, I want to try to explain in my film. That's not being crazy. It's a natural thing that was built into us that's now pushed to the forwards. You know, the survival thing. And so, oh gosh, you know, what's, you know, so. Uh, I would have you know, thought of that. Yeah, pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I say pretty crazy. I don't mean that. Oh, no, I know. <laughs> It, no, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's, um, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's just, it's life and it's life in real time. You know, it's just, it's just amazing to, to be part of that and then hear these stories and be able to be part of the, the healing on this side of it. When is the documentary coming out? Do you know? Oh gosh, 9-11, 2021. Really? So Okay. That's uh and you know, and here's the thing is uh we we're ninety percent of the way there, but we still need a little bit more funding. You know, if anybody is interested in putting it is a tax deductible five oh one C three umbrella through the American or through the International Documentary Association. Oh and you can go to un, un, unmasking hope the movie.com and there's a donate button there. I'm going to put the um, the link to that in the show notes. Yeah. And so uh, we're going to finish it one way or another with people's help. It'd be great because we've gotten this far, you know, and now we're now this whole COVID thing has put a whole nother like take, you know, on um, production and and everything. But, you know, we've been through it before. This is my fourth film. So personal film. So we'll get it done. You will. So unmaskinghopethemovie.com. Uh-huh. Where's another place they can... Oh, your website, your personal website. Yeah, find out more about me. It's ecproductions.com. Mm-hmm. 